Hi, I'm Chris Waddell. Every week we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Today, I am joined by Lisa Franks, who is famous for six gold medals in the Paralympics and one silver medal. She also is a phenomenal adventurer. We're going to get into the adventure part, which to me is just amazing. I, I did not know that she had named her her Honda Odyssey. Honda, not Odyssey, but Element, right? Honda Element, Marty. and But also... She's from Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. So Moose Jaw, how cool is it when you tell people you're from Moose Jaw? I mean, that might be one of the coolest names of a town. And do, do they take you seriously or not? A lot of people have heard of it, but I have no idea where it's from, but it's just a very memorable name and there's always connections. So yeah, I take great pride in saying I'm from Moose Jaw and always hearing about all the different people that know about it. It is. So we were just talking and, and I have to come clean because I posted that I knew you from Atlanta, but I didn't actually know you from Atlanta. I knew you from Sydney where you were 17 years old in Sydney and took the place by storm in 2000 in Australia. I mean, breaking world records, winning races, what winning the 400 by 11 seconds. Is that, is that what you won the 400 by? That was in Athens in 2004, actually. Oh, it was Athens. Yeah, the races in Australia were really, really close. It was uh, my coming out party, I guess, my first big international meet, and nobody knew who I was, and I think I caught a lot of people by surprise. <laughs> How did that feel to be, because you, you said you're watching the Atlanta Paralympics from the hospital. And a lot of people have, have said this, this same kind of thing. Did you want to see the Paralympics when you're in the hospital? Or were you like, I don't, I don't want to be a part of that whole thing. Don't show it to me. Well, when I was in the hospital, shortly after starting rehab, I had met Paralympians. So I'd met Clayton Garine. I had met Daryl Stubel, a couple of rugby players with Team Canada. So they had come to me. I had met them. And didn't really know what the Paralympics were about, hadn't ever heard of them before, but all of a sudden now I had that hook. It was like, I know people that are going to be there. And so, of course, I was just um, just tuned in, trying to get any snippet I could of what was going on in Atlanta. And yeah, it just, it caught me and I said, well, I'd love to be there someday. And I didn't think it would only take four years, but uh, between, well, Clayton actually became my coach and in track, he became my coach the next year and we made it happen very very quickly it worked because Clayton's wife was my physiotherapist just a stroke of luck and she knew as a young kid a very athletic very into sports and she said right away oh my husband he's an athlete he travels all over the world and so I was expecting this big muscular guy and he came in and visited me and for those that know Clay, he's kind of just like a scrawny, well, he's, he's strong, but it's not what I pictured in my mind at all when I pictured, you know, a world champion wheelchair racer. He's just a colorful character, and he wheeled into my hospital room and kind of just showed me 
life and it started out just evolving from learning how to do a curb in a wheelchair to traveling all over the world with wheelchair sports. So much of the basis of this chat is, is from our school presentation. So with One Revolution, we do a program called Name Tags and we're basing it on our, what we call our four S's of resilience. And, and they're questions we can ask us, ourselves when things get difficult. And the first one I think fits you is, is the idea of, you know, am I a victim or am I a survivor? It's a question about self. The second one's about situation. Is it overwhelming or a challenge? Support alone or part of a team? And then do we have one strategy or many? And, and for you, it seems like you've encapsulated all of these and you went so quickly in the beginning from that potential victim to being a survivor, but also to having this support. And, and you got so lucky with Clayton's wife being your physio. I mean, he had to be, you know, almost, almost universally. I mean, there's a consensus that he was probably one of the nicest guys in the Paralympics. I don't think anybody had a bad thing to say about Clayton. No, you, he was just so accepting and so helpful and just entertaining. And it just like the warmth radiated from him and, uh, I agree with you. I don't think anybody could say anything negative about the guy. But but for you, it was it was a shock, though, right? I mean, you ended up in the hospital. You sort of woke up and you could walk, and then and then you couldn't walk, and then you lost the feeling in your hands and your arms, and and didn't know where it was going to go. I would imagine. I mean, what was the what was that thought process like? Because you're not prepared for it, are you? I, no, I was walking around. It was Easter break back home and I was snowmobiling and just felt a little bit off that week. I went to bed and woke up at three in the morning and I couldn't get out of bed. Like I couldn't stand up to get out of bed. And so I was then taken to the hospital and it, took, it seemed like hours and hours until I was diagnosed and it just progressed. So I couldn't walk and then paralysis started moving up my body, up into my abdomen, and eventually my arms couldn't move. And so by the time I was diagnosed, I was in complete shock. I was feverish, had no movement other than a little shrug of the shoulder, and they just basically had to rush me into an emergency surgery as soon as the diagnosis came through. Um, so what I had was called an arteriovenous malformation, and it was just a cluster of blood vessels that had not formed properly from birth uh, it was in my spinal cord and they burst and were just causing damage to the nerves in the spinal cord and so it was really really important to get them to get in there and to stop that bleeding and remove the pressure because the next thing to go would be my respiratory system and when i did have the surgery i came out i was on a ventilator just paralyzed and just yeah in shock wondering what direction life was going to go from that moment on. How do you, so, so you wake up at three o'clock in the morning, do you start screaming for your parents or whatever? Like, I can't get out of bed. Like, how did they know? I was so unbelievably calm somehow. I was in the basement and they were at a bedroom in the basement and they were on the top floor of the house. So I crawled from the basement up to the main floor and that was just, a lot of work because I didn't have any upper body strength at that point and then I kind of just passed out I remember in the kitchen floor and my brother luckily had come home from a night shift from work and found me and called my parents 
I didn't have to go to the, the second level. <laughs> but I don't know how as a 14 year old, I look back and I think, how did I remain so calm and didn't overreact at all in that situation? Because yeah. it would be so easy to overreact. Did you kind of think that you were in a dream or something? I mean, it seems so far fetched. Like, is this real? I'm climbing up the stairs. Is it not real? A little bit. And I think probably some of that strange thing going on in the body, in the body, you know, when you're facing trauma was going on where I was just reacting and not thinking too strangely or just had that adrenaline and said, oh, I need to, I need to get help somehow and get up the stairs. Wow. And then, and then in the hospital, and then you, then did you get into sports pretty much right out of the hospital? Once, I mean, I was in a lot of pain throughout the hospital, just having surgery and everything. But I remember a few months into rehab, and they actually had rugby, quad rugby practices at the hospital. And I was thrown in a chair and just told to go at it. So here I am, 14. I was maybe 90 pounds soaking wet and playing with these grown adult men. And some of them were with, with Team Canada. <laughs> And they were very, very welcoming and somehow, you know, it ignited this idea of, okay, I can still do sport. I'm going to be okay. Okay. Now you have to explain what quad rugby is for people because some people might've seen it. Some people might not have. And 90 pounds, you're at a, at a gigantic disadvantage. I don't think you were as fast then probably as, as you became so you might have been a good target okay can you describe what what quad rugby is I don't even know how to so quad rugby is played in a gymnasium and I would say it's almost a mixture between football and another sport really hockey maybe I don't know but it's it's full contact you know four people are in a chair and these chairs are built for destruction they have big bumpers on them and you play with a volleyball the object is to get the volleyball across the goal line. And the problem with me was being 90 pounds soaking wet, there's this little rule that when you're on defense, it's kind of like you line up against the goal line and people can't get past you. But if you go over that goal line, it's a point for the other team. So they quickly figured out that all they had to do was line up from half court, get a run at it, hit me, in my chair and I would just go sliding over the goal line and it was a point for them. So <laughs> it wasn't a natural thing. It probably wasn't, you know, the best sport for me, but just being in that sort of rough and tough environment was great for me. I, I was a tomboy growing up with three older brothers. And so it, it was just natural for me to be in that environment and feeling that sort of rough and tumble environment and sport again <laughs> but yeah. also i mean you're, you're not completely stable i mean i guess for you it was not it was not a spinal cord injury so you didn't have you, you weren't missing the stability of of your spine you had you were clearing a blood clot so there wasn't there wasn't that ability like you weren't healing bone while you're in the hospital so you weren't you weren't in jeopardy of of, of doing was, more damage my my spinal cord was somewhat glued back together, but right, there wasn't any fracture or any sort of hardware in my neck that we had to be worried about. But I was very, very, very weak. I 
I remember I couldn't even wheel up a ramp at that time. And here I was just <laughs> getting pummeled by grown men in real therapy. What was their response to you? Um, I think they welcomed me and I remember them commenting on how I had such good ball handling skills for somebody who was just so new to the wheelchair. And they even commented that I had good fitness. Like I was very, very fit going into it. And so a few months in the wheelchair and I was keeping up and wheeling all right, wheeling circles around them a bit in a way. So yeah, they were very, very accepting and just welcomed me. And, you know, within a year I was traveling to nationals with them and they were sneaking me into the bar. <laughs> just, I don't within know what my parents were thinking. Yeah, yeah. What's what's the drinking age in Moose Jaw? It would have been 19, but we'd go to Alberta. Alberta, which was the province over, and it was only 18 there, so we weren't breaking the law too, too terribly. <laughs> that is awesome. So so quad rugby was your first sport. It was. That you, that you, when yeah. did you get into racing? Because you met Clayton, who... To, just to back up, Clayton was Clayton in a lot of ways for for the quadriplegics for the what was what was a T fifty two the the track classification was the man for a long time both on the you know especially the longer distances like five k ten k the marathon like he was he was the guy who established the standard and and was was the person everybody was chasing so. So you you went to the top, you went to the guy, but I don't think you didn't adopt all of his tactics, I don't think. Somebody recently on Facebook showed Clayton in a, it was an old, I think John Burr had an old ad of Clayton, at, you know, like a, a top end ad, and it was just this perfectly beautiful chair and everything, and somebody commented, well, within within five minutes, that's going to be covered in clister, and I mean, which which with, with quadriplegics, the, the tack, the, the contact can be a little bit more challenging. And Clayton was, was famous for having this handball clister, like, which is like pine sap effectively, that, that he always had on his gloves, on his chair, on everything. You stayed pretty clean though, didn't you? I don't think he knew me well enough. I was pretty, I would try to cover it, but I, I didn't know any better because Clayton was my role model and I just saw him covered in cluster. But people also noted that we also had the same crooked helmet. They always said we can tell who coaches Lisa because we got the same crooked helmet and we kind of stick crooked in our wheelchair from scoliosis. But yeah, we were actually pretty similar in a lot of ways. Well, and you were, you were equally fast. So when did that, when did he start coaching you? He, so I met him in the hospital and I think it was, so my injury was in April and it was that fall, I want to say, that I tried pushing in my first racing chair. I went out to, he was about, he lived a little over an hour away from me and we went to his place. I tried it. I hated it. I said, I'd never, ever do this sport. And that Why did was you that. hate it? It was the technique. It was a technique because we had, you know, we had racing gloves on. You're pushing with the back of your hand. It just didn't come naturally. And then you had to lift the front end to steer it. And I was terrible at it. Just absolutely awful. 
and then, going straight the crown of the road i remember that even when i got into my first racing chair just kind of going and you're like okay i'm trying to go but then the road is you know there's a crown in the road and and i could never quite get going straight it seemed like it lasted forever so yeah well i'm from the prairies our roads are pretty flat and straight but didn't remember that but i just remembered so much work also getting into the wheelchair yeah that Sandex on who who would want to do this? I couldn't fathom. And then when did it, when did it happen? I don't know how he managed. I think I was just looking for something to do because I it, we had gone through that winter without really doing anything, and then early in spring I think I said I wanted to try it again, and I did. He sold me as one of his old racing chairs, and it was something that I could do. I could get home from school, I could go right from my house and just wheel along the streets. And so I would do that after school and it, it's what gave me sort of a sense of normalcy back into my life. And, and then within a few months, I was invited to a Canada Games trial, which is a big multi-sport event with all across athletes, young athletes all across Canada. And that was kind of my first breakthrough. Really? You, the first games you went to was kind of your first breakthrough? Yeah. I was seeing other athletes in wheelchairs. We had a contingency from Saskatchewan of a few different athletes. And I just, you know, I didn't do very well. I think I got lapped in the 800 meter, but... Which is two was, laps, so that's yeah, a challenge. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But it was just, uh, it, was, it gave me so much to strive for because I wanted there were athletes there that were trying striving for Team Canada and I could see so much potential with it. Was that so different than what you saw in the hospital? I mean you saw a little bit more in that you were playing quad rugby and those kinds of things but the sense of possibility did you was it was it more than you'd imagined it would be when you saw people who were really good? I just Seeing those athletes in person, I didn't know how I would ever get to that level, but that just, I couldn't fathom from where I was at being lapped to getting to the point that the athletes that were at the top of the podium were at. So that for me was just to have that up close and personal was what left me kind of gobsmacked was, well, how do I do this? And luckily I had great mentors that showed me how. Yeah, it's my first nationals were 1992. And it was also it was the trials, it was the nationals and it was the trials for Barcelona. So all the all the big guys were there, you know, I was like, you know, I, I ended up I ended up as the novice of the year at that at that race. It was I actually got a plaque that was like, you know, which is one of those sort of like backhanded kind of things like here's your award you're you're the you're the best of the people who don't know what's going on <laughs> <laughs> gotta start somewhere though right <laughs> i don't know where it is I, I need to go track it down but it was really cool in a, in a way to because on the track it's so different than road racing because the road racing you don't really see the race where track I was able to sit there and I was able to watch the race and see the tactics and the the technique of drafting behind somebody so that you could stay out of the wind and save energy and and then seeing the sprint at the finish and I was like wow like this is super exciting 
and, and that's what got me really is is watching that and and it sounds like it was a similar kind of deal to you but it's also it's a community isn't it i mean you get in that community with people who've been around for a long time and how did that change the way that you looked at sort of like your everyday life for me for me yeah it was probably more about the community and the acceptance of my disability at that point yes i love being out and wheeling active but Seeing other people that had gone through similar things and adjusted really well in, in their life, uh, that's what really got me hooked. And I could, at that point, I wasn't even independent. I had, my mom had been a nurse, and so I got to leave the hospital early before I was even really ready to. And so, traveling to my first Canada game, she, she kind of came and she would help me do some of the self care. So then, I get there and there's other people that don't have that and they're completely independent and I was so embarrassed by it that was a huge motivator for me was just to get so I could travel on my own without any help and so all those things of seeing other people trying to get independent and then trying to improve my racing skills just really was a whole package and from then on it was just no turning back. Did you gain any heroes at that first event? Did I gain any heroes? There were some coaches actually that really stood out to me just because they, I think it was a learning experience for them to have somebody so new with an injury. And then it was a learning experience for me to try to, do I accept help? Don't I accept help? It was just always this juggling act. And then we've, we kind of bonded through that. It's like a balance of what do you do? Do you, you know, do you help each other or not? And so I think as we maneuvered through that, some of the coaches I really gained a lot of respect for and kept in contact throughout the years with them. When you so then so you progressed quickly. I mean, this is this is one year out, but it's also three years to Sydney. And and you went from from you know the hospital, the newbie, the the mom as your nurse at your first event to did you know going into Sydney that you had a chance to to be as dominant as you were or a chance to be on the podium or what did you think going into Sydney? I, I had zero expectations going in. I had done a few international meets. I had gone to the big metro track meet in Toronto that we always hosted. I'd been there twice and we did a summer down under series in Australia about the year before but it was one of those things where the top people weren't really going to those so there were these names that I heard of but had never seen in person and so I didn't know how I stacked up against them and they had never heard of me so it wasn't until just the starting line at the first race where is looking around it's like oh okay these are the names these are the people i've heard about let's let's see how all of this goes and i think my first race was the 1500 meter which was probably one of my stronger ones and it was close it came down really the two of us and luckily i i ended up spoiler alert i ended up on the top of the podium in that one where did you did was it like the last 200 meters was it the last 100 meters where did it you pull out? Last hundred, yeah, I think I just passed around the corner and had 
maybe half a chair length and just managed to hold off the last push. That's awesome. So what did, um, when, when you got there, you got your first event, you got your 1500 under, and then you went from winning the 1500 to winning again and again and again. How did they look at you? Cause, cause the thing is you were, Sydney was, was in October. So you, were you still in high school? Were you taking time off of high school to compete in Sydney? No, I graduated the year that spring. And so I actually moved in September to university. I was there for two weeks, met my professors in, in engineering and said, okay, I'm going to be gone for the next six weeks. <laughs> Catch you in six weeks. And uh, they sent me with textbooks and homework. And I uh, really didn't do anything. And I was just focused on racing in Sydney and somehow managed to survive the semester. I still don't know how. Really? Because engineering is one of those weed out majors where right in the beginning, everybody wants to be an engineer and then and then there are a lot fewer at the end of the semester. So you took six weeks off and still managed to survive? Yeah, I, that's basically the conversation. Like one of my first classes, they said, look to your left, look to your right. By December, only one of you will be left out of the three of you. And that's when I raised my hand. I said, okay, well, can I take six weeks off? But they, uh, they managed to, I think I did drop down to just, three of the five classes. I picked up the other ones later in the summer, but they were very understanding. We'll just say that. Yeah. That is, that is absolutely amazing. So engineering and, and you weren't doing any studying when you're in Sydney. No, I think I pretended to, or I'd crack the book, but then, Oh, you're in an athlete's village with thousands of athletes and there's just too much excitement going on. There's nobody, yeah, nobody's super helpful in the, in the village. Wow, wow. So, and then four years later, you're, you're in Athens. So did you, you graduated on time? You did, you did your four years or no? I actually took that year off because I had qualified for some funding and they had helped me. So I took from January of 2004 off from school and I actually went down to Australia and I trained through the winter in Australia there. And that was just remarkable for my training. I went from, you know, I think I probably took about six seconds off my 400 meter PB in that, in that time frame. So it was just outstanding just to be able to focus. That was the first time I was just able to focus on one thing and that was just track. What, how was it focusing on one thing? Did, was it good or did you, or are you one of those people who needs to sort of be distracted in some ways from, from that one oh, thing? It was great for me. It was, well, first of all, I was escaping the Saskatchewan winter, which was, <laughs> I was not complaining about that one bit, but it was great. Just, I was staying at a training center with another Canadian athlete. We were surrounded by triathletes mostly and rugby players. And it was just, I lit, that's probably when I thrive the most is when I can just not have anything else to worry about. You just have sole focus on what's going to be happening in eight months time. And I just came out 
strongest and fittest I'd ever been and confident in the work that I had done throughout that season. So, so you were successful in Athens again. Do, do you miss, uh, you know, I mean, just, just in talking about, about your time in Australia, did you, do you miss the lifestyle of being an athlete, like the lifestyle that you had that year? Um, yes and no. I've been able to now focus on different things. So I'm trying a lot of different things that I didn't have the time or I didn't want to get injured or, you know, do that. So it's been fun discovering all these other interests I have since then. But at the same time that, you know, if I had an opportunity to just go and do something and put all my focus on and, you know, just strive for be the best at something again, I would definitely do that again. I just wouldn't know what in is racing. Those racing days are long gone, I would say. But that was pretty much it, right? Did you just pretty much end after Athens in 2004? Did you continue um, like some road races and things like that afterwards? or I, I did one more season, but I had actually was, wasn't motivated to train in track. So I did a complete switch and I said, I want to go for Team Canada in wheelchair basketball. And so after Athens, I did a couple of marathons that, that fall. I came home and then I still had a few months off from school. I packed my bags and I went to Edmonton and stayed with some Canadian wheelchair basketball players. And I just trained with them. And just that was my next focus was to play wheelchair basketball with Team Canada. Which is one, a bold move to decide that you're going to do something entirely different, but it's even just a little, a little bit bolder in that there really aren't many quadriplegics who are playing wheelchair basketball, right? Wheelchair basketball is mostly paraplegics, but, but even, even more so than that, right? Even more so in that they're amputees, there are people who are, who are effectively able-bodied who have blown out their knee or done something like that. So they have an injury that prevents them from playing basketball standing up, but, but it, it's, it's probably the sport. It's probably the, the, like the Paralympic sport that has the most able group of people. Yeah, absolutely. And then you, you decide that that's the direction that you're going to go where there really aren't any peers. There aren't anybody like how, I, I think a lot of people have a difficult time deciding that they want to do something different but then that they want to do something different that they're not necessarily uniquely suited to and that they might not, where they might not succeed. How, how were you able to make that kind of a decision and, and also go from like being on the top of the world to saying, no, I'm going to try this and it's something entirely different. And I could just sit on the bench the whole time if I make the team. Yeah. The thing is, I have loved, I loved basketball as a kid. Growing up, able-bodied, I would pretend I was Michael Jordan. That was my sport. And then when I was injured, initially I said, I want to play wheelchair basketball. But I was so, so weak. I couldn't even pick the ball. I couldn't lean over and pick the ball up from the floor. So it kind of, the idea of playing wheelchair basketball was put on the back burner. 
but then eventually about two or three years after my injury I did start playing it just for fun just with our provincial team recreationally and I liked it I wasn't strong at it by any means just because I was at the very bottom of the classification scale but which means that you're picking people right that they're like Lisa go out there and get in the way and and we will run people into you and then somebody will get open to take a shot. This is, you're an obstacle, you're a cone. Yeah, yeah, I was, I don't even think I got on a score sheet and scored a basketball or scored a basket or until my second or third season or something like that. Um, it took me at least two seasons to be able to shoot a regular shot, not like a shot put one-handed hook at the, at the hoop. But I had played, yeah, so all throughout, you know, the six years or so that I was racing, I'd also played basketball for fun. And when Athens happened and I just was not motivated to train anymore, I wanted to be challenged. And so it was just a natural transition, really. I had some of the team Canada girls that I knew through the sport just in my ear saying, oh, there's going to be some people retiring. Maybe, maybe you want to give the sport more full-time uh attention and stuff like that and it what i loved about it is that in racing i in the t52 class i was probably sort of at the top i had a bit more strength than a lot of people out there i'll admit that and then all of a sudden to go to wheelchair basketball i was at the very bottom of the totem pole like even within what is a class one i was probably one of one or two quadriplegics in the world that had played um, at an international level at that point. So that was a huge, like, I just love to be challenged and to make up for that physical strength. I had to really use a lot of my intellectual skills and just try to adapt that way because I, I wasn't going to go score 20 points a game. I just had to really just learn how to use, you know, your tactics and your, your mental skills to try to hang with people that had more function than I had. And your mental skills are, are math and physics, right? Electrical yeah. engineer, electrical engineer? Is that mechanical. What it is? Mechanical yeah. engineer, sorry. <laughs> mechanical engineer. So ma math and physics. So, so are you sitting there, are you, are you, are you working out the equations as you're, as you're on the court or how's that working? Not necessarily equations, but definitely angles of, okay, if I cut off this person at this angle, they're out of the play, and even sort of the timing of it really works itself into, because it's like, okay, I can keep somebody out of the play for this long, but then how much time do I have to get back into the play, and it, it actually does really run, really relate in a lot of problem solving in many different ways that are engineering related. Right, I would imagine. I mean, I'd imagine. I'm, I mean, it, it sounded like the question was in jest, but at the same time, I think that 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 breaking up the court and figuring out how you can use your skills or at least your your mind to put yourself in the right position. You were one of the fastest T52s in the world, and and oftentimes in history, right? I mean, I think there. Do you still have any records? Any world records? I don't believe no. I do. No. Actually, a lot of them were broken by fellow Canadians, Del Stillwell. So, hey, at least, at least it's still in the country. 
Only country sharing the wealth. Were you fast on the on the basketball court? No. <laughs> I, I would say I was probably fast for my disability level, but at the same time, there were only a handful of us out there with that disability. So um, right. I definitely had to make up for it in a lot of different ways. You had to be far more strategic, which is, do, do you... Do you value that more in some ways? So like as a T52, in some ways you were, you were stronger than a lot of your competitors. I mean, that's, sport is never a level playing field, right? And Paralympic sport is, is even that much worse in some ways in that, that you have classification. And so you can be at the top of the classification, uh, the functional classification, you can be at the bottom of the functional classification. And, and, and you still have to find a way to compete within there. Did, is one more gratifying than the other for you, one sport? For me, yeah, make, overcoming those things where you lack, I think was more, I felt more gratifying just because you have to be creative and you have to just use what you have in a different way. And that really excited me to be able to, find a way that I could, you know, do an underhanded layup when I can't even balance with, without holding on to the chair somehow. Right. Yeah. And basketball. And the funny thing about a layup, like as an able-bodied person, the layup is really probably the easiest of the shots. Whereas as a wheelchair basketball player, the layup seems like it should be easy because you're closer, but as you're moving at speed, this little shot from close to the close to the basket can be the most challenging and the most embarrassing as well, where, you know, it's like, oh, it should be really easy. And all of a sudden the ball is like at half court because you've just spiked it off of the backboard and, and couldn't quality, you know, this, this is probably where your physics come into play. We're trying to figure out how to uh, how to actually have it soft up against the backboard, but there are so many so many other parts of it, right? I mean, it's 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 your lower trying to trying to shoot from a lower position. When when you started when you started playing basketball, what was what was your hope? Did you hope to get onto the national team, and did you get onto the national team? Um, so I started in 99 and then was just playing for fun. After Athens 2004 is when I said, okay, I want to give this all my attention and I want to try to make Team Canada. And so in 2005, I didn't make it. I made the alternate team. So I was a development athlete. And then 2006, I had an injury at tryouts, but they had already seen enough of me throughout the season and the first half of tryouts. And luckily I, I made the team in 2006 with Team Canada and we went to our first, I guess my first world championships and we came away with gold that year. So it was just, you know, I, I was literally on top of the world that year. It's amazing. And then did you compete in Beijing in, in basketball? You did. I did, yeah, yeah. Uh, that was a rough year. I had had a shoulder injury all that basically from January or until September, I guess, whenever the Paralympics were. So I was still progressing as an athlete, but then I had an injury that was holding me back a little bit. But 
it was wow. just, it was a very different thing to be at a game in a team sport. I really enjoyed having teammates and just it was a whole different traveling experience and there's 12 other or 11 other athletes and a whole whack of coaches and managers and team support staff. So victory is really a shared victory at that point, whereas you are, I mean, you're part of a team on the track as well, but it's still an individual sport. You can win a medal for the overall medal count content or medal count, but what happened with the, uh, with the engineering degree? I mean, yeah. we hear a lot about sports. Were, were, you, were you working as an engineer as well? I did, yeah. In 2006, I came back from Worlds. And I graduated that year and then I got a job and went right into the workforce. Uh, I work, well, I still technically work for a consulting firm and we work in commercial building design. So with my mechanical degree, I am responsible for things like designing HVAC or plumbing, fire protection systems, things like that. But with COVID right now, I'm temporarily, temporarily laid off, but hopefully we'll get some work picking, picking up here again shortly. How are you able, because you challenges have been a big part of what you've done. And following you on Facebook, anybody who wants to follow Lisa on Facebook should follow Lisa on Facebook because it's always interesting. You're always up to something cool. And you and your father adapted your car so that you could put a bed in your car and you pretty much decide, that's it, I'm going, and you're going for a month or more when you go on these trips? Um, the longest, so in actually last year, Christmas time, I left and it was supposed to be for four months. And I, uh, it got cut short because of COVID, but I did almost three full months of car camping. And basically, yeah, it's just a, a little Honda Element SUV and I've got a plywood bed in the back and then all the storage underneath that. I've got a cooler, I've got camping kitchen stuff and clothes and lots and lots of sporting equipment. And so basically I spent three months this, this past winter down driving from Saskatchewan all the way down and I drove through Washington, Oregon, and then all the way down to California along the coast and kind of made San Diego area my home base. And then I just got the travel bug. And then I just finished about a six week road trip now. I just got home this week. So it's just uh, been amazing to be able to have your home like wherever you park it. You don't have to worry about accessibility. You just pull into a spot and that's your home for the night. It's very, very liberating in many, many ways. What made you decide to do this though? Because I mean, I mean, a lot of people would look at it and go, okay, so you're a single woman in your car, driving all over the place, sleeping in various campsites and driveways and, and beaches and wherever, all over. You happen to be a quadriplegic as well. You know, so, so a lot of people would look at it and go, is she some, is there something wrong with her? Do we need to talk to her parents? Is it time for an intervention? What, are, what do we need to do? Why, why did, why did you decide you wanted to do this? 
And and what was the reaction from the people around you when you said, "See you later. I'm I'm going for four months." I was just trying to get away from winter again. It can be so long and cold in Saskatchewan, and I just I'm at my very best when I'm outside, enjoying nature and physically active. So I said, "Well, how can I do that? How can I combine those things?" And it's like I love camping and it's so much work to set up a tent so having the vehicle where you just pull in just made sense to me but I just love adventure I mean being with Team Canada for so many years and I was always always balancing athletics and work or athletics and school and so now I have this time to explore different things and to try different things and so that was what motivated me was to just it's the open road and I really didn't have any fears. I know people were saying you're a female on your own with a disability. What are like what aren't you scared? Aren't you worried? And I just I didn't have any real fears. I try to be as safe as possible and think of, you know, I I do things to maintain my safety, but I also don't want to always be thinking of the worst things that could possibly possibly happen. Just try to you know live a life where I think of the positives in a way wow which is absolutely awesome that you're that you're doing this and you meet a lot of people along the way too right I mean it looks like I mean at being a Facebook stalker it looks like you're you're meeting a ton of people how do you how do you do that do you just do you have just an outgoing personality uh how does it how does it work I don't, I typically am an introvert actually, but I feel like once I hit the road, I turn, I have an alter ego or something like that because I'll just, a lot of people I met through an app called Couchsurfing. It's where people can host you and it's just like a very organic way to meet people in the local community you're at. Um, I've met people through Instagram who I knew were into adaptive surfing in San Diego and so I just messaged them on Instagram and said, hey, we should surf together or um, mountain biking. There's all these little adaptive associations that, you know, do rentals for equipment and experiences for people with, you know, disabilities. So that's how I met a lot of people in this most recent trip was through the associations. And it's just, uh, I don't know, it's just, yeah, I, I switch into an alter ego where I am very um, outgoing and I just, I think I feed off the energy I get when I'm traveling and people see that and want to be a part of it as well. Are you now an advocate for travel? Do you, do you tell everybody you come in contact with like, oh, you need to travel. You need to do this. You need to see this. I, I, I wouldn't say you need to, but if you're comfortable doing that, you know, I will definitely um, encourage people to sort of get out of their comfort zone if they haven't done it or just trying to experience new things because you just don't know what's out there until you go exploring. It's, a, it's such a neat feeling when you stumble onto something that you hadn't even thought of or heard of. Like on my trip through California, I went paragliding three times with um, just an adoptive organization that I stumbled upon. And that, next thing you know, you're flying off a cliff and it's just a beautiful experience and you just have to take it all in. 
so you've mentioned that you started in wheelchair rugby, you raced wheelchairs, you played basketball, you mentioned mountain biking, surfing, paragliding. What are, I mean, there, there, there's a litany of sports. I mean, there's so many different things. Do you have, you have your own mountain bike, right? So this is, uh, what's the so name of I, your mountain bike? Uh, Bashy. <laughs> I've nicknamed it Bashy and it's supposed to mean freedom, which is exactly what it does for me. I never pictured being just out in nature on my own, unplugged and away from all the distractions. And that's what the mountain bike does for me. And it's, it's such a unique, wonderful thing for me that I've, I want to share that with other people. So I have started a club where I live, where we're trying to collect more of these bikes and they're such an expensive piece of equipment. The, the hope is that people, instead of having to go buy their own, can rent it and use it as a loan and you know, loaner equipment, and then they can go out on their own and experience it. So we're, we're slowly building. Well, yours, so you have a one-off, right? A one-off uh, mountain bike. Yeah. Can you yeah. describe how you ride this bike? Because also you were talking about the racing chair before and not liking the racing chair because it was so difficult to get into the racing chair, whereas getting into the one-off can be a challenge as well. Yeah, yeah, it is very much a challenge. I think, um, so it's in a kneeling position. You're basically on your knees and you have a bit of a chest pad that you can lean on and steer. And then you also have some, they're not handlebars per se, but you have some hand grips that you use to steer. And the trick with this bike is that you have a choice. You're either steering or pedaling. So it, you can do a bit with your chest, but with my injury level, it is very tough. So you're kind of constantly going back between pedaling to get your momentum and then steering through some of the more technical trails out there. But these bikes are about 10 years old. And then two years ago, we actually had e-assist put on them. So that has been a, a game changer. They're aftermarket and there are a few headaches with it, but just being able to have that assist from, from a motor has, been, has opened up so many possibilities with those bikes. Well, it's such a challenge because that's I, I did a fair amount of it. I actually was, was the first test pilot for Mike Oxberger, the guy who built the one-off. Yeah. It, was, it was near where I had grown up and he just called me up because I'd been in our local newspaper. And he said, hey, do you want to try this out? And I was like, yes, this would be so cool because it's an opportunity to get to the woods, which is something when you're in a wheelchair, you think that's it. Like I'm never going to get to the woods again. It's my life is about curb cuts and sidewalks and, and all of these things. And, 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 and I also remember like when, when you're pedaling, if you're pedaling uphill, there's no, there's no coast. Like you pedal uphill and if you stop, you stop. And you stop immediately. So it is physically, it is really challenging. I hope this is okay. But you posted recently about an old boyfriend who, who thought who, who the, the relationship ended because, because he didn't think that you could go along on the adventures with him, the things that he wanted to do. Mm -hmm. is, is there a part of you that's motivated by something like that? 
huge part of it. I got dumped and I said, okay, well, I'm going to go on this big adventure and I'm going to capture all of it in pictures and videos and I'm going to post it and he's going to eat his words. And so that is how my adventure loving spirit just kind of got going was, yeah, it's like, I'll, I'll show you. I, I know what I can do. I've never really explored a lot of it at that point, but I'd wanted to. And that was the thing that got me going, really, was just to prove to him and myself that I could still do a lot of those things. Do you think he knows that you're doing this stuff? Uh, I have no idea. Probably. Because I make a lot of things public that anybody can see. So we'll see. I don't know. Never said anything to me. And this this guy was nicknamed Oompa Loompa. <laughs> yeah. Which makes me think that he would have a more difficult time keeping up with you than vice versa. It, it was kind of a play on words, actually. Yeah, no, it was just a funny nickname because he, in a lot of his pictures, he looked really, really short. And so he had <laughs> called himself Oompa Loompa at one point because I was asking how tall he was. We'd met online, so. Which is actually, which is a perspective thing. For those of us sitting in a wheelchair, it's, you have an idea when somebody's really short because they're almost eye to eye with you. And when somebody's really tall, but sort of that in between, you, yeah. you lose perspective. You yeah. really, how tall are you? And somebody's like, what do you mean, how tall am I? And it's like, <laughs> I can't really tell. I don't have enough of a perspective. I'm too far away. Yeah. yeah. So he started it, but now it sounds like it's your own though i mean it sounds like yeah. you're, you're you're not doing this for him no no i think he put the idea in my head i i think i'd always had these ideas but i didn't know where to start and then i started going on these little micro mini adventures and then you just start dreaming of the next thing that can come with that and getting those getting the mountain bike club going and having a bike that i can do these things with just opened up the possibilities for me and now I'm hooked and I've just got all these ideas going that I that I want to accomplish and want to try at least and I think also another huge motivator now for me has been I've been starting to share these adventures with people I used to have all my Instagram and everything private but I opened it up and now people have been messaging me saying oh I have a new spinal cord injury and okay, I see how you do that. And just sharing that and collaborating with them on how they could adapt and do some of these things has been really, really rewarding as well. You recently posted that, that you were an open book, right? As far as, cause it was national spinal cord day. Is that what it was? That uh, September, it was a whole month, right? The whole month. Right. Exactly. So, so you said, ask me anything. What, what's been sort of the most bizarre question that you've been asked oh, or the most memorable question? Well, everybody always wants to know how do you deal with bowel and bladder while you're out camping and stuff like that. And I'm pretty open that I had a metrophen off so I can do a catheterization quite easy wherever and whenever I want. Um, and then just using a washroom Whenever, whenever I'm near a washroom, I can plan to do uh, my bowel care routine. So that's, I think, what is always on a lot of people's minds. And, um, and then how do I 
do it the things independently such as load my vehicle load my bike things like that and it's just all a lot of problem solving and trial and error is what I've come into. But you can do this all independently. You're like, once you leave, you're, you're on your own, you know what you're doing and yeah, you've got your bike behind you. Yeah. A little I, trailer. Yeah. I had a specially made bike rack that tilts into a ramp so that I can load the, I can just roll the bike up and then, and then flatten it out again into a level platform and I'm just always careful I do go do a lot of solo riding but I tell people where I'm going what trail I'm going on what time I should be back and luckily knock on wood nothing's ever happened I didn't have a single mechanical breakdown on my bike at all this last trip so it's just yeah it's been an amazing time wow that is so cool. Do you have a favorite among the among the new sports that you've tried? I would say just mountain biking. It's, it's, it's something that gives you so much freedom and it's really easy to do because, um, you know, it's not like I'm still so reliant on people through surfing or monoskiing to help me either get into the water or just even help getting me into the mono ski things like that so I'm sure I'll get there independently but even with mountain biking I can leave right from my home and hit beautiful river trails or I could drive and just go off into the wilderness and uh, be on my own for however long I want to. With the e-assist how fast can you go? <laughs> uh, 45 kilometers an hour so that's what 23 627 miles per hour but that would be on pavement i would never do that on a mountain bike trail it's they're too rough but. wow yeah wow it's you know when when I, I i used essentially the same kind of thing i used a four-wheeler when i climbed kilimanjaro right. and and i told people that i was going really fast when i was going two and a half miles an hour like I was, I was, I don't even know what that would be in kilometers, but that, that would be like, uh, it'd be like four yeah. kilometers, four, four, four and a half kind of thing, something like yeah. that. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, it's, it was, I mean, it, it's just one of those things that, but it's a, it's a totally different deal. Do you, do you listen to music? Do you listen to books? Do you, are you just there? I'm, I'm just there. I do a lot of breath work sort of meditative um, mindfulness stuff like not particularly when I am grinding up a hill or whatever but when I stop and have those moments it's just be there and taking taking the quiet nature in is what I'm all about yeah huh it is it is a, it is a really I mean I think it's just it's one of those things that when you're in the hospital you never think that you'll get there and you'll never get to that, that sort of sense of natural peace and, and existence, you know, cause sometimes, I mean, I think when you're in the hospital, in some ways it feels like you might not ever be allowed to be alone again. Exactly. Yeah. Is this the demonstration for you of, of independence of true independence? I think it is in many, many ways because 
yeah, I'm bending my perception or my mind and bending other people's minds of what they think somebody with a disability is doing. Because, yeah, you think, I've had many people just assume that I don't even live on my own. But then I say, no, you know, I take a kayak and I go for a day trip or I take the mountain bike and I go off and I pack a lunch and I'm gone for the day. And just to see that shift in what they think is possible. And now what I know is possible has been just really, really empowering. Well, it's also because it's, well, do you live alone? Like who takes care of you? And then it's, well, can you drive? And it's like, yes, I can drive, but that's the intermediate step to the rest of this world. I'm not sure if I can ask this question, but I'm going to I'm going to try to make it work anyway. But the independence part of it, it seems like it seems like because because some of this started with this whole with this whole relationship, right? And 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 now is is there a greater fulfillment and sense of identity in terms of in terms of who you are and a, and a sense of personal strength as a result absolutely yes um just to know know that like i always felt like it would be so great to have that partner that could help me get out and do something like go on a hike or go camping and now to look back and just in three years, be like, you know what? I figured out how to do all of that on my own and I'm flourishing with it. It's just like the biggest confidence booster and like little pat on the back that I can say for myself. Yeah. So it's like, it's cool if you want to join me now, but yeah. I don't need you. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, I'll show you how it's done. Like, I've got this figured out. <laughs> you can come along if you want. If you want, and and please don't slow me down. Really. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Anything next? Like, what's what's the next trip, or what's the next excursion, or how do you pick these things? California sounds like, uh, you know, the the warm, sunny beaches, a little yeah. different than Saskatchewan winter. Yeah. Um. Yeah. A lot of it is weather based, but my two things I have like vision coming up one is to do like a backcountry camping trip where it's a bike and I pack and I'm doing an overnight somewhere or order a kayak somewhere where I'm away for an overnight away from anything no vehicle just in the middle of nowhere um, means of kayak or bike that'll probably happen next year and then second is a, instead of my little SUV named Marty, I'm hoping to get a big full-size van and have a bed, kitchen, fridge, um, a lift so I can actually get in and be making, you know, meals in the van. And then from there, possibilities just are endless for travel. It looks like you do okay on the meal side, even, even in, your little, in your little Honda. Oh yeah, I've, I don't know. I, I think I probably eat better when I'm camping and in the out in nature cooking because it's that much more enjoyable when you're just, that's what you're focused on and that's your day is doing an activity and then making supper and going to bed when it's dark uh, versus coming home from work and you got to scrounge something up. 
um, I think I, I do eat pretty well because you're just you got the creative juices going and it just I don't know everything also tastes better after a day out in nature. It's funny the uh, I always thought that the the idea of confidence was about what I could do. And, and, and I think my injury in a lot of ways helped me remember that it's, that it's that I can sort of handle whatever I run into, that it's like, oh, I can handle what, whatever, whatever comes my way. It sounds like you're signed up on that where you go on these trips with an idea, but not necessarily an itinerary and just, you know, just say, okay, well, this, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be gone for this amount of time, possibly, or maybe not. And where am I going to go? I have an idea of like the first day, but I don't necessarily have an idea of the second day. I mean, that sounds incredibly liberating. Is that it, the way it feels? It is because that is not my day-to-day personality at home. I'm very reg- Like being an athlete, you would know you, you're up at this time, you're training at this time, your life is planned out in four-year increments. So the first couple of trips that I did, it was an adjustment, but you just have to go back to that, trusting that things will work out and knowing that you're flexible and that you can work around whatever you come along with. Just as an example, on this trip, there was so much smoke from the fires in Washington and Oregon and I was camping and just be able to say, okay, I'm not going to go to the location I was going to go to because smoke is worse there. I'm just going to completely do a 180 and I'm going to go over to Vancouver Island where the smoke is less and just be able to roll with it and figure it out as you go. Uh, it just, yeah, it, it's challenging. I start to let go of some of that wanting to control everything, but I've found that those are when like the most, organic natural things come into your life when you can just roll with things so are you able to leave like the the left brain side of you you know i mean you've got you're an engineer right i mean this is like the left brain i mean is a left brain right brain kind of thing where you're you're like okay i'm a i'm able to leave that and and now indulge in this uh in this more intuitive side of you know, leave the analytical, go to the intuitive side? Is it how, why, what, you know, what's the end result? It just comes because you're, for me, when I'm on the road and I'm traveling, all I need is food in my belly and a place to sleep at night. And so when you take all the distractions away and that's all you have to think about, they're pretty easy things to figure out. And so that's all you can focus on and and having some fun in there, throw some fun in there. And it's just the easy recipe and you come up with an end result quite quickly. Do you still have to get Wi-Fi? I mean, I'm imagining you're still working as you're, as you're on these trips or not. No, I'm not. I'm I'm temporarily, temporarily laid off with COVID right now. So uh, that, and you know, on this trip, I haven't needed to have Wi-Fi except to touch base with family and friends. But uh, the ideal situation would be that I could work remotely and have micro adventures and work a little bit in the day, and then you know 
do a lot of it remotely. Uh, I, it sounds like it sounds like you've figured <laughs> you've figured it out. Do you feel like you've figured it out? Like this is how to be happy in life. I do. I feel like there's just like so many distractions out there, but when you can just break it down to you know what makes you happy. And for me, like I said it's at the start, it's being outdoors and it's being active. And it's just when you can look at those things and say, okay, how do I make those happen? And I've figured out a solution to that. And I know what direction to go and I know what's stopping me right now. And so I just have to adjust and work around those things. That is awesome. I think that you, a lot of the people who are listening are going, okay, I'm going to have to look at my life a little bit differently now. I think you've, I think you are, you definitely have, have changed some minds out there. So Lisa, thank you so much for, for joining us. Thank you for doing what you do, you know, for going out there and demonstrating to us that, that life passes us quickly and we better have some fun along the way. Yeah, that's so very, very true. It's been a pleasure. All right. Thank you for yeah. having me. It's been great catching up. It has been great catching up. We did run into each other back in San Diego when you were in the midst of, of one of your travels. And I sort of flew in and flew out and, uh, at an event, but, but really cool. So uh, thank you all for joining us. This has been an awesome episode of the Name Tags Chat podcast. Per usual, you can go to the One Revolution page on Facebook to check it out if you want to if you want to watch it if you only saw part of it if you want to tell your friends please tell your friends it will be posted to the one revolution channel on youtube as well and we will have i'm not sure who we have next week we're still working on that but we will have another exciting adventure next week i don't know if it can top this this is going to be a big challenge for the next uh, for the next guest i might have some ideas for you that <laughs> all right sounds good i'm open to these ideas lisa thanks a ton and look forward to seeing you on one of these adventures sometime soon. All right. Thanks, Chris.